Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, your host, or one of your hosts. Eric Whitehead to my left is the man with his fingers in the dials. Directly across from me today is the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's. And, uh, and joining us are two guests, Kent Collier and Sarah Gefter, both of Reorg, formerly Reorg Research. But uh, what they do is uh, research into uh, credit. Very, very volatile and actually, frankly, sometimes uh, a little bit questionable institution. It's a promise to pay, right? Well, it is now. Yeah. If uh, my background research is correct, you are the founder and CEO of Reorg, correct? That is right. All right. That is right. Wait, did you just say that we're a questionable institution, Jim? We're a legit institution. Oh, no, not Reorg is no. questionable. I said the institu- You're legitimate. What you research the, may be less so. The institution of credit... <laughs> is a very problematic institution. Well, and the, I, I, the, the companies we cover have problems with their credit, so I understand. Yeah. Could you, could you uh, help us begin by, uh, Sarah, perhaps because you are uh, an artist and an architecture student by uh, training at Harvard, perhaps you can tell us what Reorg does for a living. Sure. So um, I guess I can start with our core sort of original business, which is covering the U.S. distress and bankruptcy market. Kent had a very blog that I followed called Distressed Debt Investing. I'm an avid reader of that because I'm the type of person who Googles stuff about distressed debt. But when did that start? Was the, the blog? No. When did you start Googling distressed debt? This goes back to high oh. school, does it? Uh, kind of after college. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. I started, I started at Lehman Brothers and then as an intern, summer of 08. So it was quite the hot time for, for bankruptcy and distress, and I just got hooked. So I joined Reorgan 2013 as the second employee at the time. We started out covering uh, bankruptcies and distressed debt in the United States. Kent built a beautiful technology um, around PACER that eases the pain of pulling court documents from PACER. That was sort of the technology that we built editorial around. And we now have a research and news business that we we sell to hedge funds, law firms, and advisors. Um, we report on all of the biggest bankruptcies all the way down to the middle market, and more recently have moved into high yield as well, and the primary market as well. We have a unique model where we have three teams on our editorial team, which are former bankruptcy attorneys, former investment bankers, buy-side analysts, and then financial journalists. And we all work together to cover all the various angles of these companies. We send out breaking news. We send out long-form pieces. We do a podcast like I mentioned. So we sort of cover the waterfront for our subscribers. And, ju- and just to add real quickly, is, you know, in 2015, we expanded coverage to Europe. So now we cover all of EMEA, high yield and distressed debt. We recently opened up a Hong Kong office. So we're covering Asia out of Hong Kong and soon Singapore. So we're covering, for example, the changes in the India bankruptcy law, things that are going on in topical distress in India and Malaysia. And then we've expanded the product to do things like mergers. There's a very very interesting cross story right now between Cengage, a company that used to be bankrupt, um, is merging with one of their competitors, and there's antitrust risk there, but also, also credit implications. So um, the company sort of expanded from just covering Lehman Brothers like we did back when we started. Okay. Well, very broadly, Sarah, you, you started your career in the midst of the financial crisis, and Kent, you've either been investing in or writing about distressed and high-yield market for much longer than that. As you kind of look at high-yield, distressed, or however you want to cut the market today, how does it compare, contrast with um, 2007? Like, is it better? Is it worse? How are things different? What? How does it stack up for the average investor? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, 2008 was a bit of a wild year for anyone that was on the buy side in credit. You know, there's a there's a story that when Lehman liquidated their prop desk after the bankruptcy, you know, bonds that were marked at fifth already got marked down at 10. So relative to where we are today, you know, where the world seems awash in liquidity and, you know, the relative to um, really last week, stock market indices continue to rise higher. There is a lot less distress today in terms of number of issuers and just the dollar figure that is investable. Um, there are a lot of large topical bankruptcies now, but that is a fraction of what it was like in 2007 and 2008. In 2007, you know, a lot of what credit investors were focused on, which Grant used to write about, was subprime crisis. Um, subprime started widening out in April, May context in 2007, and that was a very, very topical trade. Um, now, distressed funds are um, searching for various opportunities, and you know, many, many funds spend a lot of time on the PG&Es of the world and the wind streams of the world. But relative to even three years ago, there's significantly less bankruptcies going on than there were. So I think a lot of funds are looking at the same opportunities. There's not huge, huge capital structures. You know, Lehman was a nearly $300 billion capital structure where you can deploy capital to. So it's definitely a tougher environment to make money in today. Kent, the paucity of bankruptcies today, do you put that down to uh, easy access to credit and uh, low interest rates such that marginal companies can find a second life when they might otherwise have uh, gone to heaven? Uh, Absolutely. How do companies go bankrupt. They breach a covenant or they run out of money because there's effectively no covenants in the market right now. Um, They need to run out of money. Um, And it's very, very difficult for companies to run out of money unless they've got cataclysmic risk like PG&E. And so companies that have massive maturity walls in 2021, 2022, 2023, they are getting capital and liquidity in the form of potentially senior secured debt, which layering in the old bonds. Um, they're doing um, the, the CLO machine and the number of CLOs that were issued last year was near an all-time high, and you need to feed that beast. So there's more and more private loans being done. Also, if you go all the way down to the middle market, there's been a huge growth even relative to 2007, private lending and the private credit markets. Um, players that did not exist in 2007, you know, those funds are now raising billions of dollars, and those are extending even more and more credit, supporting LBOs and private equity buyouts and mergers and acquisitions. So, yes, there is a tremendous amount of credit right now. When you had interest rates being so low for such a long time, the reach for yield, you know, continues unabashed. And investors are trying to put money wherever they need to to get, you know, excess returns. The amount of real money out there that needs to deploy capital, whether it be pension funds, insurance funds, CLOs, et cetera, et cetera, still is enormous. Um, and you can- is that money being adequately rewarded? Uh, Sarah and Ken, I looked this morning and I think the spread for high-yield bonds above treasuries is 389 basis points. And going back to 1996, the long-term average is 559 basis points. So, you know, investors are like 200 basis points worse off than, you know, the long-term history. Are investors being adequately rewarded for the risk they're taking by lending to these highly levered companies? I think me and Sarah probably can both both answer to that. I mean, uh, we're, we're not, Reorg is not in the business of calling where we're at in terms of the cycle. The only thing that I can say is I know that we're in the extra inning. I don't know if we're in the 11th inning of the cycle or the 15th inning of the cycle, 
but I think that's a, an adequate way to answer the question that as the cycle continues to sort of move on, I don't think at the end of the day, investors are getting adequately rewarded. Also, if you think about spread on high yield, you have to start factoring in recovery rates for bonds on a high yield indices. And because there's so much more top part of the capital structure, so secured debt, first lien debt, second lien debt, recoveries in the absolute should be lower in the next cycle. And if you also add on the fact that there is so much triple B investment-grade debt that is going to be downgraded, which is going to potentially double the size of the high-yield market, um, those bonds have effectively no covenants. They're going to get layered in, and spreads are going to widen even further. So I think, and Sarah, you can add in here, I just don't think investors are getting compensated right now relative to the risks that they're taking on for eight, nine, ten-year pieces of paper. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think um, the yields tell that picture and also um, – Borrowing costs are way lower, and there's just you know a lot of lot of debt issuance going on, and doesn't show signs of stopping except for yesterday with all the trade fears. Okay, so you guys made the point that companies are able to tap liquidity, so they're not going bankrupt, and also there's no covenants to trip, so there's no second look from creditors who uh, can step in and demand like a higher payment or action from management. What might prospective recoveries look like in the next default cycle, especially given that we've seen features like the J Crew trapdoor that allows creditors to basically seize assets and basically give them up to a, a sponsor. Like, what were recoveries a decade ago? What might they be going forward? Sarah, do you want to take that? Then I can add on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Ken kind of said it said it pretty well. There's pretty top-heavy capital structures right now and not a ton of protections. You know, I think for in the J. Crew trapdoor kind of example, those sorts of mechanisms exist in many other credit agreements and other capital structures. You know, we've seen like PetSmart and even Marcus, two examples that have transferred assets sort of out of the core restricted group. And I mean, arguably, in those cases, you know, those transfers were allowed, you know, unless there's sort of more heavily heavily negotiated provisions and more pushback during the drafting and marketing phase. I don't see any, you know, reason why those sorts of creative transactions would stop and those only serve to, you know, further put pressure on recoveries. Sarah, um, can, you, can you explain the trapdoor? Sure. So basically, J. Crew transferred some of its intellectual property to an unrestricted subsidiary, meaning a subsidiary that um, is not part of the credit agreement group. And basically, the way they did that was indirect transfer to a Cayman subsidiary, which then sent that money to a different entity. Um, And by sort of that two-step process, they were able to get around some restrictions in their debt documents and ultimately, you know, lever up that value that they took away from the existing creditors, if that makes sense. Well, it makes makes sense. It's it's kind of, I mean, isn't the whole basis of credit trust? Uh, Definitely. I mean, but I, I think, you know, there's a good argument that, that those, you know, series of transactions were, were allowed and the company J. Crew, you know, got went to court to get a an opinion that they were in fact allowed. So yeah, are, they, are they not predatory? Um the question was are they not predatory? So so unfortunately, you know, these documents were negotiated when the company did the deal and whoever bought the bonds did not spot the ability for value leakage in the underlying documents. We have a whole service that goes through and tries to figure out where the value leakage is, how we believe as a firm that the company is going to do whatever they can to extend their options. 
And that is aggressive, oftentimes aggressive reading of the debt doc. To your original question of comparing recovery rates um, relative to the last cycle, it's, it's very hard to compare the recovery rates in this cycle versus the last cycle because the technology that is being used inside these debt documents are very, very new and almost untested in a restructuring cycle. And the way that sponsors and other management teams and law firms that create these documents, how they're created is that generally speaking, they will take the most aggressive terms that have been allowed by the market and then continue trying to press that needle further and further. So for a long time, Refinitiv, which is a very, very uh, large acquisition, Blackstone buying some of the assets from Thomson Reuters, that became the templated document for indentures and credit agreements that many sponsors use to effectuate LBOs. Um, and then as more and more sort of I'm not going to say nefarious because they are negotiated transactions. Aggressive terms and technology comes in. Those are then added on to the refinitive structure to make sort of this monster of a debt document that makes very, very few credit protections and is very, very sponsor or equity friendly. Hey, Ken, you use the word technology, which uh, at least to the layman like myself connotes a slide rule, say, or a fax machine or even one of these computer thingies. What do you mean by technology in the context of a legal document? So the Jason trap door is a technology. J. Crew trap well, it's a gimmick, is a no? It's a... Again, they are negotiated documents, so I don't want to call them a gimmick. Oh, for crying. Um, I mean, but can't we? But, can't... but I think there's these sorts of trapdoors, you know, all over the documents. For example, you can have a definition of EBITDA, which leads to how much debt you can incur, that allows for unlimited add back with a, you know, you can add back expected cost savings, which you expect to come in over the next two years. Yeah, um, so that's a great example. That's a great yeah, that's a Jim, that's a technology that was um, created something about ten years ago where EBITDA and the definition of EBITDA would include expected cost savings over the next eighteen months. I think it started at twelve months and then it got extended to eighteen months. But the concept of an EBITDA ad back for expected cost savings, that did not really happen until the 2005, 2006, 2007 context. So before that, a credit agreement, they never had that. So that is a new technology that was employed by sponsors and other um, people trying to get aggressive uh, uh, terms can, to really push the needle. As you look across, I guess, the um, the landscape of unicorns and and Facebooks, what are the technologies that worry you the most today, and which are the you think the most problematic trends in technologies as you're looking across loan documents? Sarah, do you want to take take some of that? Sure. I mean, I think just generally, um, you know, allowing companies to get more and more levered, and you know, not restricting what new proceeds from new debt can be used for. You know, to extend it's paying shareholder dividends or sending that value outside of business. You know, that's sort of the most Boring trend because to your point, you know, there should be a, a good faith aspect to this. How, do, how does this change investing in credit? I mean, year, years ago, if you had a really good sense of the fundamentals in an industry, you can look at the levered, you know, borrowers and say, I think this company might do better than that company and I'll invest in this capital structure because I think it'll survive. Now you're, you're saying that because of the rise of technology, you, you have to have a huge, deep legal background in going through all these documents. So how is, I guess, the relative importance of like fundamental research versus legal research changed in terms of investing in credit today? And how do you think that's going to shift over time? I mean, I think the, the value of fundamental research is still extremely, extremely valuable. The amount, the number of buy-side uh, 
um, shops that have a lawyer on staff or on the desk right now is up dramatically in the last 10 years. That's progress. So the buys... The, the buy side has definitely um, has definitely um, has definitely understood that. I think uh, the buy side is generally employing more law firm counsel um, and then services like ourselves to try to help them spot the inefficiencies in these documents. Can I challenge that just one second? Because uh, alongside with the rising complexity, we've also seen the rise of passive investing. So some of the biggest bond funds out there are the JNK or the uh, HYG. We also have the BKLN, which invest in loans. So you've had a huge amount of money going in there that by definition doesn't read the loan documents. How, how has this kind of shifted and changed the way that, I, I guess, documents are underwritten and kind of how uh, loans are won in an auction? That's a great question. At the end of the day, you know, when a when a bond comes to market, a billion dollar high yield bond comes to market, that bond is going to most likely go into the indice at some point. And so index buyers need to buy some pro rata portion of that bond. There are still a tremendous amount of fundamental buyers that are going to be buying the bond on the merit. The level of depth that that firm employs its analysis on understanding the documentation, I think very much depends on the buyer. For a number of real money shops, whether it be insurance companies or pensions, et cetera, et cetera, may focus more on the fundamentals versus the legal underpinning for the document. Hey, uh, um, can, the uh, more, uh, may I pause one second? Because what you have just said reminds me a little bit of an advertisement. Yeah, this is this is this is how uh, the podcast industry is going to support America. We this this is a for-profit business, and we have an ad. The ad happens to be for Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Fine, that's but uh, but here it is. Okay, this is this is a new ad, great. new ad that I want you both to listen carefully because this is I'm pr- pretty proud of this. I actually I uh, I. I actually created this myself with the with the cooperation of the following uh, testifiers. This is a testimonial advertisement for grants, and I want you to listen carefully. All right, here it is. Quote, page for page, pound for pound, the best periodical, best financial periodical in print. Period, close quote, Stan Druckenmiller. Open quote, page for page, pound for pound, the second best financial periodical in print. Period, close quote, Steve Forbes. Great minds disagree. You decide, ladies and gentlemen. Visit www.grantspub.com. That is an ad. All right. Now, where were we, Evan? You have a question? I, I, I have an observation. I have an observation, uh, Sarah and Kent. And the observation perhaps is, uh, uh, maybe it's a little hasty. I don't have much time to formulate it. But it seems to me, listening to the two of you, that what we are about these days in credit is the... Um, a very, very marked deterioration in the in accounting standards. Witness the prevalence of uh, aggressive EBITDA adbacks. I mean, EBITDA was bad enough. It was Moody's came out in 1990. It had a kind of had, they put out a piece uh, the title of which was I think taken from a popular movie at the time. The movie was uh, 10 Things I Hate About You," and, and the Moody's piece was 10 Things We Disapprove Of" with respect to EBITDA or something a little bit less catchy. So EBITDA was controversial when it came in, you know, non-GAAP and, and kind of subjective and a little promotional, and now. Now, and now, we are in competition to further degrade, previously degraded EBITDA. So, okay, so accounting standards are on the decline, and we have such low rates and such access to credit that prospective bankrupts don't go bankrupt. So we are pushing forward companies that, uh, that ought to be in another place except planet Earth. And then we have, um, we don't use the word predatory, as you won't, I will. We have the predatory relationship between the borrowers and the lenders such that, that one side is out to knife the other and will unless they engage, for example, reorg, which they ought to do. So isn't this pointing to something really noisy 
and, and newsworthy and cyclically epical in the next, oh, inning or two to borrow your baseball analogy, Kent Collier. Is this, is this going someplace we rather would not visit? I mean, cycles happen. Recessions happen. Bankruptcies happen. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot stave it off forever. Sarah and I talked about in December when the equity indices were down 17% and credit spreads widened dramatically and bonds gapped down. We thought, okay, here we go. It's happening. Because, you know, when credit goes away, it goes away very, very quickly. And I, and I know you know that, Jim. Um, it can, when, when the tide goes out, uh, a lot of people are going to love naked. Um, and so right now we're in, the, we're in the point where, yes, terms are very, very aggressive. The machine needs to be fed. We have seen pockets back and forth in both on, in the United States and London of, or in the U.K. about pushbacks on some terms. But generally speaking, it is very, very, very aggressive. And because can, can you give an, uh, an example or two of something that's really aggressive, just something that you it may or may not default, it may or may not go bankrupt, but when you look at this loan or bond just based off the terms, it's something you warn clients advance. I mean, just give us something tangible so we can understand like what you mean by this. Sure, sorry, I think, wanna... Yeah, I think I think the EBITDA add back is, is a good one. Um, another one is... But, but in terms uh, of like a, an issue, like can you talk about like, I, I don't know if Valiant or Bosch and Lom has like egregious loan or some other company? We've all, we've all heard about WeWork in this community-adjusted EBITDA, but how about something a little more contemporary? Is there something recent that, uh, that, that rings a cyclical bell that we'll look back on and say, aha, that was the, the kind of Bear Stearns mortgage fund of 2007, and that's, that's the counterpart today. What, what, what might be that bell ringer? Oh, well, I can throw out a couple, and you can tell me if, okay. if they ring the bell. So one, we saw us in a private deal, so I'm not going to say the name of it, but this, in this case, debt fund affiliates can vote over 50% of the loans, so effectively they can control you know, any, any lender amendment. Typically, the limit on an affiliate owning a owning the debt um, and voting has been 49.9%. So it doesn't sound like a big move, but giving affiliates control um, over any loan amendment is pretty aggressive. Well, why, would you, why would you loan money to yourself, Sarah? Though what, what is the, what is I don't I don't understand the uh, uh, the mechanics of this. So the, uh, an affiliate is buying the debt, 50.1% of it. Right. So a private equity sponsor, or portfolio company issues bonds. Typically, those bonds will limit the amount of debt that a affiliate of the equity sponsor can vote. So if the company wanted to amend its credit agreement, it needs you know, at least a majority of lenders to accept the amendment. And historically, affiliates have been limited in their voting power to under a majority so that you had to get at least one other lender who wasn't the sponsor to vote. So, um, so Thomson Reuter acquisitions uh, bonds, and because of that, it can actually own a controlling position because it both has the equity through the private equity side and a majority of the debt through its debt fund. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So that's a fairly um, nefarious turn of mind you're evidencing there, Levin. I'd suggest perhaps for a later career after, you know, after and uh, much later, you might think about uh, doing one of these predatory debt deals. I'll, I'll map a few out. Sorry, Sarah, please. Another example would be great. Uh, no, that's okay. Sure. We have, um, for example, allowing unlimited uh, dividends, cash dividends, based on a first lien leverage test. Um and this is sort of which company is this? Even more. There's been a number of them. I can. I have to think about which specific examples. Um, not coming to the top of my head at the moment. But you know, I think that the, this is a particularly troubling development if you think about uh, you know sponsored deals where unsecured bonds are a big part of the the financing. Um, the fact that you can send unlimited dividends based on a first lien secured leverage test makes that a 
pretty large potential risk. What else? Uh, and then and go for it, Jim. I don't want to. There, this is this is more thematic, which I think would be definitely interesting to do a deep dive on. Um, but the number of high yield issuers that are putting out investment grade like covenant packages is definitely increasing. So, as you probably know, investment grade covenants have very, very, very few covenants. There's generally um, a potentially a change of control covenant. There's a, a restriction on selling the entire company and maybe even a sale leaseback covenant. Whereas in a high yield issuer, you'll have restrictions on paying dividends, restriction on sale of assets, use of proceeds, et cetera, et cetera. You've now seen more and more high yield issuers actually issue with an investment grade like package. So that's just throwing all covenants out the window, you know, saying even though this company is single B or double B, we're still going to give it investment grade like covenants because it's a large issue or whatever it might be. That's and like no technology. <laughs> exactly. No uh, technology. All right. Well, so, so uh, Kent and Sarah, uh, so the, the leveraged loan market has grown to be about a trillion dollars. It's about the same size as high yield bonds. And the biggest driver of that is uh, collateralized loan funds, CLOs, that buy loans and they cut them up into different tranches for you know cash flow waterfalls. And that's like a six or seven hundred billion dollar market. But the market has grown so fast and CLOs have grown so big because loans and CLOs turned out to be pretty safe in the last cycle. Just given the deterioration in credit, do you think the same thing might happen next cycle, i.e. that CLOs and loans will be you know outperformers? Or do you think they're going to be dragged down because of... Um, Technology. <laughs> um, that's a great question. So, and we we think about that a lot, and we debate that a lot, a lot because it goes to your question about what actually catalyzes the mark. So, obviously, um, at, because a CLO is an ABS, they can until there's an actual default or a way to mark the security down, it doesn't start eating into the CLO equity, and then the double Bs, triple Bs, single A's, et cetera, et cetera. If there is a cataclysmic event where there is a default rate spike going not 4% or 6% or 8%, there is a chance that CLO equity gets wiped out, maybe the single Bs, double Bs, depending on how levered the structure is. If you remember, the mortgage financial crisis, the mortgage crisis was, was basically based on no one thinking that home rates and home prices would go down nationwide. So if you have a trend towards a very, very large default rate, there is a real risk that CLO structures could implode. Um, the problem, again, though, is on a bottoms-up analysis, it's very, very hard to come up with reasons for anyone to really come to the table because there are no covenants, and oftentimes the sponsors are going to inject equity to extend their lifeline from an option. So I think I can't give you a yes or no, but it's it's not a zero probability and it's not a 100% probability. Well, Kent, thank you, Sarah, thank you. I have a semantic proposal uh, for in the interest of uh, intellectual hygiene and, and clarity and plain speech. I, I suggest we ditch this word sponsor and restore the, the old and uh, not entirely honorable uh, descriptor promoter that uh, you, uh, you used to call them promoters. And you read books about finance in the 20s, promoters, yeah. These people aren't sponsors. We have a sponsor, it's called Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Kent Collier and Sarah Gefter of Reorg, thank you both for, it was merely terrific. And Evan, thank you, and Eric, good work on those dials. And ladies and gentlemen, talk to you soon. This is Jim Grant for Current Yield. <laughs>